welcome everybody to episode five of Catamount Trail Chatter. Uh, today we are sitting down with Aiden Powell uh, to talk about his uh, attempt and success uh, in setting an, a fastest known time or FKT on the Catamount Trail uh, this past uh, this past spring. Uh, welcome, Aiden. Cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Greg. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, how are you? How how was it? Just generally, how was the trip? Like, did you? Was it a good experience? Uh, it was. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, there's obviously a lot to say, and um, I think the, the one of the biggest things just was uh, having great weather and being able to have a window that that worked. And um, you know, I skied the trail in from March 4th through I think March 19th. So it was the last their last window. I think by three days. I think if I'd been three days longer, it would have been a uh, grass skiing experience. So, nice. um, so that, that was a big, big part of it, but yeah, totally positive overall. Awesome. So when was, when was the last time you were on skis? Are you still kind of like searching out little secret stashes right now, or have you put it behind you a while ago? I haven't touched these skis um, since the trail, but I've been on my, my more traditional sort of telly backcountry setup a few times and I, I really do love this time of year and being able to find, we, like we call it the Cochran Glacier, you know, like just the, the remnants of snowmaking on ski areas. And um, so that was n nothing overnight, nothing too big, but definitely uh, played a lot on, on yep. the little stuff. So I'm not completely sick of it yet. I was going to say, so your experience on the Catamount didn't like ruin you for the rest of the season. It was like. <laughs> You're right. And I've had that experience with bikepacking trips in the past where I've, I've biked for two weeks straight and then just been like, get my bike away from me. I'm going to, I'm going to run. I'm going to like, you know, anything so, yeah. <laughs> okay. So quickly though, so people get to know like maybe who you are and um, it's like, where, where do you live? Uh, how old are you? And what do you do? I live currently in Huntington. Um, I grew up in Charlotte and I go to school out in Colorado. So um but I'm 23 years old and I'm currently timber framing for Vermont Heavy Timber in here in Huntington. Um, but I'm an ecology student at Colorado College and am hoping to do some work in sort of the forestry or, um, or wildlife biology field eventually. Nice. <clears throat> and did you grow up in Vermont? I did, yeah. Charlotte for the first 20, 21 years of my life. You're only 23, so that's most of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so growing up in Vermont, I'm, I imagine skiing was part of life, basically, <laughs> from the beginning. Oh, absolutely, yeah. We weren't the kind of family that was crazy into skiing, but I was on skis at age four, and we um, we would usually be at Matterford Glen every Sunday, and um, <laughs> and that was, you know, I think I'd take lessons and be in, like, that cohort where there'd be, like, 20 five-year-old kids just ripping down the mountain and nice. so definitely had really good memories of that um and and alpine skied up until high school and then just wanted to change things up a little bit so i started snowboarding and snowboarded for about five years um and uh and so after uh you know snowboarding this was right around when i was i took a year off between high school and college and decided to uh, work at the Maple Sugar Farm at Cochrane Ski Area. And the way we access the taps in the wintertime is, is on skis with skins. And that was my introduction to, um, 
to traveling uphill with skis, with skis on my feet. And um, those are actually the same boots that I used then. I got them from my boss at the time. He just kind of had an extra beat up hair. And, um, but that was, that was when I, you know, switched from, from snowboarding over to skiing again was really because of the ability to have really streamlined backcountry accessibility. And um, it was something that I, I sort of wanted to dabble in and then really took off going out to school in Colorado and getting to um, find a good community of people out there to, to do backcountry skiing with and do it safely. Cause there's, you know, um, just a whole lot more consideration around avalanche train and uh, where and when you ski and with who you ski and having the right, the right, um, education around avalanche avalanche stuff so <clears throat> education and attitude right and attitude for sure and i would add that the ski areas out west have a completely different feel than they do out here and and i grew up at cochrane's matter for glenn and bolton and really loved like the like the tom petty playing on the stereo when you're like getting on the single chair or yeah um just really, really laid back and quiet. And a lot of folks that have been skiing there for a really long time and, and going out West and skiing at those resorts was a little overwhelming and um, just more people, bigger terrain, faster lifts. And that sort of put me over the edge. I got a pass one year, my first year. And then that really just motivated me to continue doing the backcountry stuff. Um, cause, cause I, you know, I, I enjoy the, the physical part of it and, the quiet and um and there's a there's a lot to be said for for backcountry and that was the beginning of it for me and so it sounds like you got into backcountry skiing or like uphill skiing through telemark through like a telemark setup mm -hmm. and how do you can and you continue to use like a telemark a three-pin setup on the catamount trail are you using at skis at all or are you a telemark skiing as well uh, yeah out west i've been at skiing but um i'm i'm at another pivot point here with if I'm going to, you know, stay with AT or move to Tele and I've really been enjoying telemarketing. I think there's, there's just like more variables involved in having the free heel and, um, and it's, it's more physical. And I also find that I can ski terrain that would be maybe boring for me if I was on AT and can make it really fun and, and play around and every turn is a little bit different. And, um, and so, yeah, there's just a lot of dynamicness to telling that I think I can see myself staying with it. And I think, I think I will after, after the CT too, like being sure. <laughs> on well, in, in, in New England, like for, for around here, I mean, a telemark setup is like a great way to explore because there's so many like false flats and, you know, the terrain is so, you don't necessarily have like these long, steady ups and downs. Absolutely. Nice, yeah. Nice to be able to transition really quickly, especially if you have like a, some of the newer, wider fish scaled skis that you just, you basically just go everywhere you want and you never stop. And so. Totally, I, I love that. And that's, you know, part of the reason that I didn't pursue split boarding too, is just, I love snowboarding, but there's actually a little bit of transition time. And, um, and, uh, and I think telling just takes that to, to another level. You can scoot, scoot really anywhere. And if you have a good skin, skin rip routine, then, um, it's, it's a really, it's a really good way to explore the backcountry here. I've been living just on the, you know, on the back side of, or I guess on the North side of Campbell's hump. Um, and there's, there's a whole lot of terrain up there 
to, to poke around in. And um, I find that a lot of the folks that ski in this area are on either, you know, tele skis without fish scales or, or wider fish scale tele skis. But uh, yeah, I feel like the, I feel like the first uh, wide fish scaled ski was, uh, you know, like the Carhu put it out there. I used to know a friend of mine, Hansi Johnson used to work for Carhu here in uh, when they were located here in Burlington in this area. And I remember I was living in the Midwest at the time and organized an event called the Midwest Tele Fest. And I remember, I don't even know how many years ago, he came out there when he was working at, and he had a pair of Carhu Jacks, which are these giant, like hundred underfoot skis that he had put a fish scale base on. Oh, nice. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, oh dude, that is gonna be the future of <laughs> skiing. And uh, at least in places like the Midwest and the Northeast where, you know, we have these like little hills and like, a three pin setup is like the perfect way to just, you know, you make a few turns, you turn around, you skin up a little bit across the flat, you make a few more turns. Like you don't want to be putting skins on and off and transitioning boots and binding modes. You just want to go. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, the, the round the, or it's like the circumnavigation of Campbell's hump trail, yeah. uh, which is on my list of, I think next year, I'd, I'd really like to see that. I haven't done that before, but, um, that seems like, like the type of train that would be really well suited to the same, you know, ski that would do well on the Catamount trail or that sort of thing. A lot of ups and downs. And yeah. well, and it's such a, it's such a thing. It's such a hard situation to kind of, there isn't really an AT setup that has that type of efficiency that's, you know, for that type of terrain. Like you really, it's unfortunate to see, you know, Talmark be such a small part of the, like, now, I don't say they're struggling, but there's so few people adopting it. There's not a lot of investment in that technology. And the reality is it is the perfect solution for certain types of situations. Right, right. So, yeah, absolutely. We'll see, what, we'll see what happens. Anyway, so you've lived, you've skied a lot out west. You've skied quite a bit here in the northeast. What is it about skiing in Vermont or the northeast in general that is so special about that to you? Or is it, is it even special? <laughs> oh yeah, oh it's, it's, it's special, absolutely, yeah. Um, to me, it's the, the long history of skiing here is really fascinating to me. I think about, um, you know, Cochrane Ski Area has been a big, a big part of my, my life the last number of years. And um, I'm, I'm really drawn to the, the idea of, of having more local skiing and smaller scale skiing and, um, you know, 50 years ago, most towns would have their, their own rope toe in, in town. And, um, and that's been a, a real reality out West too, is living in Colorado Springs. It's, it's two hours and 15 minutes to get to the closest ski hill. And for me, accessibility to skiing is just a really wonderful thing. And it comes with its, its, its downsides of, of, um, maybe not having quite as much snow and, but I think that's also what makes Vermont skiers really, really good skiers and really fun to be around is because they're down to like to ski on really any train that you can that you can imagine. Um, yeah, ready to go at the drop of a hat. Yep. No matter what it looks like. <laughs> right, and and you can find you can like you can find excitement around really any train, and if it's with the right people, and if it's close by and low consequence, and you're just outside sliding on snow to me that's way more important than getting some like 
all-time powder day or skiing a, a 50 degree couloir or something and those are those are obviously great things but if i had to choose between the a, a ski area that was close by and had good community versus a ski area that was far away and had amazing skiing i would absolutely take the, the vermont variety of that nice <clears throat> yeah we i kind of i mean secretively I don't, or not so secretively you know we kind of hope that the kind of like backcountry movement and like the the chapter movement and locally managed backcountry terrain will kind of replace the rope toe, you know, the like, you know, local rope toe. Now, hopefully every community will have a local backcountry zone. Nice. Yeah. Bring skiing back to the masses and in, in an inexpensive and accessible way. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think backcountry is like the most democratic way of skiing that you can have because it's, it's an initial investment, which is oftentimes lower than, you know, than people think like there's ways to get equipment for, not exorbitant amounts of money and if you compare that to what you know a lift ticket at stowe would be for two days then you could have a backcountry setup that would last you for 10 years and totally ski behind your house you could ski to the yeah. Dr. mansfield you know it's i love that you ski yeah. as much as your legs will let you totally yeah <laughs> <laughs> well cool let's uh let's move on let's talk about your your fkt attempt a little bit now you so this this spring in March, you skied the Catamount Trail and um, you, it took you 14 days and two hours, I believe, um, which is officially the fastest known time. We call, we, and we, I do want to emphasize known time because <laughs> we, we double checked our records and we couldn't find anybody that skied it any faster than that. But I, I don't want to like discount some of these old timers that might have crushed it or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> you never you never know. I, I want to be careful because I'm not, I feel like we'll make this statement and then some guy will be like, well, back in 1987, yeah. I did it in blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but <laughs> you never know. But right now, you currently hold the fastest known time on the Catamount Trail, which is just over 14 days. Now, when you started, when you when did you start planning um, this trip? And like, how, like, how did the Catamount Trail get on your radar? And then how did you, how did you move from like, and I, it, how did it, you transpire from like idea to actual like, okay, I'm actually gonna do this. And was the fastest known time, was doing it quickly, always something you wanted to do like right from the get-go or was that something that kind of developed later on? Yeah, so um, Catamount Trail is, I've always seen the little, the little blue markers um, growing up in Vermont, being out, out in the Green Mountains, um, whether on foot or even on the roads, like, you know, you're driving down the road and you might see where the, the trail crosses across the road. Um, but I would say the moment that there's been a number of moments I've been like, Oh, that would be cool if I can get the right time and the right, the right sort of um, just the right moment to do it. And, uh, but the, the moment that sticks with me that I think I was, I was like this, I, I really would love to do this was um, biking on the natural turnpike with my, my best friends from high school. And, we were on the, the section that is um it's the catamount trail crosses it a couple times it's an old mill mill um railroad line i believe it's just this amazing long straight there's no cars allowed on it so it's all human traffic and it's a super sweet section of the catamount trail um but uh we were out there and and i just remember thinking about how sweet it would be to to be able to see that same ecosystem in the same um you know, the same trail system and the way the trees looked and uh, 
and the smells and all those things, but doing that in the wintertime six months later. And, um, and so that got me excited. And, and then, you know, how those ideas, you start telling other people about it. And, and, uh, I started just their momentum grew around it, I guess. Um, but the, you know, the idea of doing it fast was, uh, was, almost more just out of curiosity. I, I remember sending you an email, um, would have been early this winter and, and just out of, you know, curiosity to see if anyone had done it in, uh, with sort of a focus approach, you know, there's of course been people that have done it quickly and, but see like coming from out West and sort of the bike packing thing out West, there's been, uh, a couple folks that have, I've, I've found a lot of inspiration from, I think about like uh, Lael Wilcox being one of them and, and setting the, uh, the record on the, the tour divide. So it's, you know, it's a, a trail that takes most people months, um, sort of equivalent to the, the AT or something like that. Um, and thinking about like that scale of a trip, but doing it, it quickly. Um, and but the sort of interesting thing is that I've always been someone that like in the, the friend groups that I end up being outdoors with, I'm always the one who's like, you know, we should really be like swimming in more rivers and we should be like hanging out and talking to these people that we meet more. And, um, and I'm, I'm really all about that. And I think that's, that is definitively my favorite part of touring of any kind, whether it's on a bike or skis or on foot. Um, and you know, I rode my bike from Maine to Oregon in the summer of 2016, and uh, and that came out as being the most the most meaningful part. In hindsight, was you know you might pull up to a gas station and have no idea who's who's going to be there and who's going to see your your bright yellow shirt and your spandex and like your big bags full of stuff and and give you some. Um, you, you know, some, some speech about whatever is on their mind or, or ask about what, what you're doing and, and get excited about it. So those, those sorts of interactions and unexpected parts of touring are, are just super special to me. And, and I certainly, uh, you know, had to forego a bunch of those opportunities doing it fast on the Catalan trail, which, um, which was hard. I thought about that a lot. And there were moments when I was like, man, I just want to take a month to do this and like and hang out for days and go into towns and that sort of thing but um but i the way that i sort of framed it to myself was just that i i i guess i do i do want to give this a shot and i think this will be probably the, the last time that i do this sort of speedy version of of a trail but there were some really great parts about it too that were um I would say like the routine and the rhythm of being on skis for 12 hours a day, every day. And, um, the comfort that comes, uh, just of knowing exactly how the skis and the backpack feel and being able to, um, to really make good time and, and travel from the lowest point of the trail to the highest point back down to the lowest point and, and more all in one day is, is, is definitely cool and, and um, is a fun physical challenge because when I, I found that I wasn't as focused on 
my surroundings as I have been for any other tour I've ever done. I was very focused on how do I keep my systems in place? Like, how do I keep my feet dry? How do I not fall into the stream when I'm trying to cross it? Like there's, um, and I think that was a function of sort of always being one step ahead of myself and always kind of keeping that pressure on um, to myself to try and make 20 to 30 miles a day. Um, yeah, because you knew that you were going to have to, like, I have to keep going. Like, I don't have the ability to take a break. So that that kind of forced you to be a little more attentive to everything that was happening. Definitely. Yeah, right, right. Um, and that, that being said, I think that, uh, that like going fast is when you're ski touring, going slower is oftentimes faster. Like I found that there were a bunch of examples, but, um, I think like feeding myself properly was a really good one. Like if you forgo a snack in the morning, then that's gonna, uh, you're not going to feel good in the afternoon. You're not gonna have the right energy. You're not going to be balanced. And, um, and that reminds me too of, uh, of this one time when I was, I was sort of rushing through an, an evening and ended up popping my skis off and was going down to fill up some water from the stream and, and punch my foot through this, the layer of ice. Cause, and it was, it was cause I was in a little bit more of a hurry, I think, than, um, and wasn't, wasn't taking my time, wasn't like finding the right angle down to the stream and the right spot. And I went like knee deep into uh, like, you know, punch through the ice knee deep and, just had a, a soaking wet boot at six o'clock at night in the evening. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so, so really quick, when, what day was that on? Do that was know? like pretty early on too. I think that might've been day three or four. Um, it was over by Stratton in the flats between, um, Bromley and, and Stratton in there. So, <laughs> but, and that, that led to a course of events that just made for a long night. And, um, wow. I, uh, and now, now you have a story to tell. And now, now I've got a story <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was, you know, I think that might've been just like one of the moments that I learned that taking my time and, and skiing really consistently was the fastest way to complete the trail. Yeah. I find that, I find that with a lot of things <clears throat> like long distance related, like that going fast, isn't necessarily the way to cover the most distance. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like going fast comes with its own, you know, burdens and, mm -hmm. You can move if you move slower but consistently and don't stop you know consistent forward progress um that you can put in a lot of miles like whether it's hiking or biking or skiing um so did uh did weather ever factor into your um decision to go fast because you know one of the things that we run into you know we've been noticing over the years is like winter's more and more erratic um and this year, especially, it was kind of a, a, a strange one in the sense that we had a relatively low snowpack. We didn't, you know, but we had a really good stretch of cold weather, which made for really wonderful skiing for most of the season, despite not having a ton of snow. And so one of the things when you're covering like such a wide, a long distance is like making sure you have good conditions. And like one of the things like anybody will, anybody trying to through ski the Catamount Trail is going to run into is like, chances are somewhere along the trail, you're going to run into less than ideal conditions. And so it would seem like going fast would minimize that variable. Um, That's a really good point. I've, 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, 14 days is still a really long time to predict weather. And that's, I think, um, I would say like (laughs) for the next person who does it faster than me, there's going to be half, it's going to be their, their ability to, to pull it off. And the other half is going to be if they get lucky with the right weather window. And I got really lucky with it. And, um, and that's not to say that there wasn't, there wasn't plenty of, of weather challenges because um, mine were actually not precipitation, but lack of precipitation. And um, I had a couple of really warm days. It was right around Lincoln, Lincoln Gap, um, going down into Warren and uh, deep, the deepest slush that I've ever seen in my whole life. Like it felt like I was post holing, but I had my 195 millimeters or centimeter skis on. Um, and, uh, and that was super demoralizing to be trying to make time, especially because I had had nice firm snow and, um, and really low friction for the first part. So, um, I remember coming down off of Lincoln gap and it's this long sort of remote traverse that loops around and then drops you down right around trigger bush. And, uh, I, had a plan to meet up with my mom for lunch. And I think I ended up being like two or three hours later than I was expecting. Um, and I, I took a couple of like face plants that put me like 10 feet down the hill, you know, just like couldn't lift my ski up to like support it. And then you got this 35 pound backpack, yeah. <laughs> this little like compact missile and just, boom. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the slush was slow and that was, that was a point where I sort of had to let go of, um, of, uh, necessarily being attached to finishing the trail, you know, no matter what, I think at that point I was like, as long as there's snow, I'll keep skiing. And, um, I have, I think there was a moment there where I was like probably 50, 50, whether I'd be able to make it through. Um, but yeah, I think the coldest was, um, it got down to like around zero, but it was nothing crazy, but there were some days that I think it got up to 60 degrees and between the beginning and the end of the day, I would, I would really have a noticeable difference in the amount of snowpack. And there were times when, when I would be, um, in low elevations and it'd be like right after a warm snap. Like I think about being in Warren, being in Morrisville, both of those are fairly low elevations and just like scooching through on corn like crossing cornfields or golf courses and like just scooching across like you know putting greens that had no snow on them <laughs> like, or right through cornfields and um and having to sort of like dodge each little cut stock of corn um but elevation is amazing how you can climb 500 feet and it'll be winter time again and and there might even be some some fresh snow yeah, well, it seems like, yeah, warm weather is not what you want because it makes the skiing slow and you're not cold, but <laughs> it's, right. not, it's not exactly what you want for a ski tour. Right, but the, the long days are really nice. And yeah, I think um, that was part of the reason that I was able to to do long days and 10 or 12 hours a day is if, if that was in January, there I, that would be like a couple hours of headlamp on either, either end of that. For sure. Did you, did you choose March specifically for some of these factors? Like, or was there any reason you didn't go earlier in the season? Um, it, I think it sort of aligned with some changes in my work schedule that worked really well. And 
and I, I was conscious of, um, of all of the like weight savings that can happen if it's a little bit warmer out and, yeah. and like the same points we were just saying, like being able to ski longer and having more sunshine. Um, so, but it was a combination of that and just simply that's when, that's when it lined up and the window worked for me to go. I really, it's been like a dream of mine to ski the Catalan Trail for four or five years, but I didn't, you know, I didn't um, like have any set dates or anything until like a week and a half before leaving. So it, it was pretty last minute as far as um, getting like all those final logistics figured out. Awesome. And so I, I see you have the, your equipment out there. Is that the, are those the skis and bindings? Yeah, yeah, I'll grab them. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, the Rossignol uh, BC100. So it's 100 millimeters in the tip and then 80 in the underfoot. Um, you can see it's all nice and beat up from skiing on all kinds of different <laughs> terrain. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's a 195. So it's, it's nice and long too, um, which I found to be, to be really nice um, for staying on top of the snow and um, it's also very cambered like there's a lot of of this going on which is more of a an attribute that is more common with um with with like traditional cross-country skis so yeah, I can glide and the ability to go straight really really well um yeah it's not the ski you want if you're trying to make like have a lot of fun doing teleturns it, it really wants to go straight but yeah uh, but it was in my mind it was a absolutely perfect ski for, for Vermont, um, had, you know, the, the right flex, the right width, it's really light. Um, and it's just simple and it's got fish scales on the bottom. Yep. Um, and it, they only, you know, they only go about this far up the ski, but that allows for not having to use, use skins. So, um, awesome. Yeah. And your, and your boots, I see some old telly boots back there. Yeah. here yeah so this boot is a special boot for me um it started as the boot that i uh that i you know sugared sugared with at cochran's and it was my my transportation for work for uh, you know five years of sugaring season um and then i'm telling on it you know not sugaring just recreationally um being in the backcountry and skiing at cochran's and that sort of thing and then it took me across the whole catamount trail and it's it's a it's a heavy duty boot it's not um it's pretty uncommon i think to ski the catamount trail on something this heavy duty it's got four four buckles but um is that an old garmont energy it is yeah so I, i've heard that garmont boots aren't made anymore um yeah i mean well Gar that's that's from when they used to be located out here <laughs> oh really i have no garmont, idea garmont used to be in vermont oh that's so cool nice yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think that's from that, from that era. <laughs> well, and so, you know, there's been a whole lot of modifications happened to this boot in the last couple months. Um, so this is my liner currently. It's got some duct tape, some holes in it. You can see right through it. Um, but this is the liner that I put into the stream that day when I um, was rushing. And um, so I made a huge fire to try to, to dry things out so this was like the sun setting i'm right around stratton vermont and um 
you know, take my boots off, put my down booties on. That's all I had. So I'm like kind of frantically running about in this field, trying to find wood for a fire. And, um, luckily there was a bunch of dry wood and was able to get a fire going, but it's, you're building a fire on, on snow. So it's, it's settling down and sort of self putting itself out a little bit. Um, but I hadn't had anything to eat yet and I hadn't set my tent up. Um, so I, you know, I popped these out and, and just put them on a stick and put them next to the fire and, and, uh, and then went to get my tent set up. And, uh, I think maybe I had set it up, but it was underneath a big maple branch that like was creaking and was about to come down. So I was like, Oh man, I didn't notice that I got to move the tent. So I like moved the tent and all this stuff and came back and the fire had really taken off and it had taken part of my liner with it. So you can sort of see it's like, starting to get singed here that's what's under the duct tape too is it, yeah. it almost lit on fire like there's two of the layers of two of the three layers of the, the you know the liner are are burnt so <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was a rough day but I was really pleased to um you know be able to put dry boots on in the morning and and not have it feel particularly different after some some electrical tape and getting my super feet liners in there. And um, nice. I, I see the rest of the trail with these. And I was, I was pretty proud that I didn't have to, I didn't have to get new ones. And they're nice. now the most comfortable liners I've ever owned because of these new modifications for all my months. Yeah, I was going to say, tell me about the holes. Are the holes, are the holes a result of the fire or are they some other, for some other reason? Well, some of them are, but the, <laughs> the big ones aren't. Um, the ones on the bottom are from the fire. And then the ones on the sides are because you know, there's different parts of your feet that that can handle whatever, you know, a couple of days of touring, but it was amazing to me to feel uh, what new pressure points would form like a, a week into skiing for 10 hours each day. Um, so, you know, you can imagine this is where like the outside bump of my foot and then this is sort of like my big toe knuckle and, um, and it was intimidating at first to just take my Leatherman and start cutting away, like, what is the foundation for a, a ski tour like this? But, um, but it ended up being, being really successful for me. And these are really comfortable now. And I think if you were, you know, if you were smart about it, you would probably, uh, like beforehand bring your boot and get it plastic. Like you can get the plastic actually punched out mm -hmm. instead of doing it this way. But if you're in a pinch, this is extremely comfortable and really easy to do and doesn't cost any money. So yeah, I was gonna say it looks real, it's very resourceful. <laughs> did, the, yeah. did, the fact, did the fact that it caught on fire beforehand make ease your mind? Or did or did you or did you make the modifications before the fire? I made the modification the day of the fire. So part of me is like maybe this was like the the boot kind of um you know, getting back at me or something for cutting it, cutting it apart. But, <laughs> and then, but I continue to make more modifications throughout the trail. And my other, my other boot also has some holes in it. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Would you, oh. if you could, if you could do it again and pick any and have your choice of equipment, would you, do it on that same equipment again, or would you make any changes to the, the type of equipment that you used? Yeah, I would totally do it on this, this equipment again. I can't think of anything that would be, that would be really better. Um, you know, one other thing that comes to mind too is 
the poles I used were, they weren't the kind that are retractable. Um, and what I've done here is it's just an old, you know, really long Alpine pole that um, I just, I put some, some bike grip tape on the top of it. And then this is just a, a ski strap. It's nice to have that around for various things, but I found this to be uh, really nice because I could really lean into it and like not have to worry about it bending or having any weak points. And there's a lot of times when you have a heavy backpack and, um, and you really have to rely on the upper body to, to, to move. So, um, so that was another thing that this is just what I, again, like this is what I had and I, I don't, I don't have 250 bucks to put towards <laughs> a pair of carbon poles. And, but in hindsight, this is really like pretty ideal for when like predictability and consistency is, sure. is as important as weight or, or versatility. So just having like a rigid pole that you can easily and quickly adjust your grip on. So you can like, exactly. Yeah. So I just choked up on them. Instead. And not have to worry about the, the, like the joint being a failure point or you yep. know, any kind of issue. Right. That's good. Yeah, that's good advice for anybody going out into the backcountry. You always want a simple, you know, as few, you know, things to go wrong as possible. So totally. Yeah, totally. That's and that's definitely like been my my sort of style with gear generally is like I'll accept a slight like weight, a little bit more weight if it means that I can I can use it really hard and, and really like lean on it in the case of the pole. But um I think there's other like parts of my clothing setup that sort of reflect that that as well but I yeah I um I probably would have had a boot that was like just a tiny bit lighter duty but um certainly a plastic boot like I, I've heard good things about the Scarpa S2 mm -hmm. um as but it's it's not terribly far out of line with the Garmont so yeah so you so not a, not a huge or strong desire for like lighter equipment like you were happy like if you could do it again, you wouldn't go that much lighter. Like you like yep. the, and then was that, is that because of the durability and just like confidence that that kind of like the substantialness of that gear gave you carrying a pack and like moving through the woods? Yeah. And I think carrying, I think carrying a pack is a really important part of that equation um, because, you know, a, like a, a really tiny amount of weight gain on your skis or poles or boots is really nullified by all of the, <laughs> equipment that you carry in the backpack so uh, that, that's that's my take at least i'm sure everyone's got their own no their I, own, no for sure well no it's good it's good to hear your perspective because like well one you uh -huh. were out there and you've done it <laughs> so you have the experience to kind of reflect on and then two i think a lot of people would yeah like immediately not immediately but like you know look to the lightest setup you know what i mean like what's the lightest setup i can get away with versus right. yep. you know, looking at something that's a little bit more substantial, maybe a little bit more durable mm -hmm. um, and something that might provide a little bit more support in like certain challenging situations that yeah. would do, would, could reduce the risk of like injury or some other thing bad happening to you uh, mm -hmm. that might put you in a really bad place if you know there's no cell coverage or you're in a remote spot. Definitely, right. So. And I think that those bindings reflect that as well. They're like just the simplest uh, voile like you know you, you have a clamp mechanism that clamps right down the toe of your boot and they they do have a heel piece that I had in my backpack that I would put on for the steepest downhills and the longer downhills but um but in essence it's just a steel clamp that comes down on your toe and 
Um, well, and that binding is nice because it has the three pin, it has three pins in it. It's not just uh, so like you, I feel like regular telemark bindings are held in place by the heel bail. Yep. And then three pin setups are held in place by the toe clamp. Yep. And there's a couple of bindings out there that have both. Yep. It's nice because you have that redundancy. Uh, yep. If you crash and rip the pins out, you can still, you know, keep going. Which yep. is nice. Yeah. So, yeah. I think one thing I would say in line of that too is um, there's, there's a couple pieces of clothing that were really just critical for me. And the, the, the biggest one that if you followed my Instagram, you know, I, I really love this company, but it's Vermont glove. And this glove is made in Randolph, Vermont. Um, been made there for uh, over a hundred years. And it's one of those pieces that, you know, it's um, you could get probably a Gore-Tex model of glove that um, would be a similar price point and be made overseas and be a little bit lighter and a little bit more waterproof. But in my mind, having a glove that is, is so durable and, um, and is, is completely waterproof when you seal it correctly. Um, and, and made by folks that are, you know, 20 miles away from the trail that I was through skiing on, um, from goats that were also born and, and, and slaughtered 20 miles from the trail. I think that's, that's super cool as well to keep that sort of circle of, of things really local. Um, so I had these gloves, which are their uphill skier model. And it's a sh sort of a leather like shell with a, a cuff. And then it's got a, a wool liner that, um, that goes into it. So this was my, uh, for the warmer days and after I'd been skiing for, you know, a couple minutes and it had gotten all warmed up. This is this, the, the glove that I had. And then I also had their, their mitten variety, which is, um, you know, same quality leather. It's got the same cuff and, um, but it's got a built-in liner and it's just the warmest and most comfortable <laughs> thing. And like, I, I would wear this and dunk my hand like fully right down into a stream and fill up water bottles and, um, and, and then also like pop my skis off and hunt around for, for firewood or whatever, and be able to not have to worry about ripping um, a less durable material. So yeah. same, same vein of like, I'll, I'll take the durability over 14 days um, when you're thinking in that sort of time scale of, of a trip. Um, and okay. Mock Love's been, been really critical for that. So. Were there any other... <clears throat> standout pieces of gear or equipment that you used or I mean I guess what did your what did your like equipment setup look like was that was it just like your standard like a uh, winter camping setup or did you make any kind of modifications specifically for this trip or I would say two of the things that I learned that were of value um the first one was uh having an insulated water bottle that was something that hadn't really occurred to me I I had in my mind that if I had my backpack with like my and right against my body and that body heat would keep the bottle from freezing but definitely wasn't the case had an algae that would really freeze up on me and was a pain in the butt so um so getting a hydro flask was was huge and um there's so much water on the catamount trail that you don't have to carry more than a bottle at a time um so i just put a little iodine in and um and fill that up from streams on the way so that was that was a really good good learning point around gear um and then um, the down the down booties from Western Mountaineering was another piece that um, I didn't have at first. Like 
I, I think I, I like had a pair of down booties previously and then lost track of them somewhere and uh, ordered another pair that, that didn't get there in time. So I, uh, my, my dad had like some, like literally just little water shoes that were like a little, little like rubber base with some mesh on top. And I was like, oh, like I need something that aren't my ski boots. I'll just throw these in. And um, the first two days were pretty, were pretty miserable with those. And just really made me appreciate having a good solid, um, you know, little puffy sphere around your feet. Yeah. Um, and Western Mountaineering is another one of those companies that they're made in the States. And I'm really um, excited about the work that they're doing and, and this, this sort of, um, you know, in line with, with Vermont Glove in that way, but. And so did you, when you were on, during your 14 days, did you stay in a tent? It sounds like you, earlier you said you set up a tent. So did you stay in a tent most nights? Uh, and then did you have any interesting or unique or memorable camping experiences? Yeah, I, I did stay in a tent um, probably 80% of the time. There was a few uh, sort of, um, like times when that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, I slept in my friend's garage cause he lives right on the Catamount trail in Lincoln. Yeah. And that was its own heroic day because I, I had to get there to Lincoln by the end of the day. And I think that previous night I was in Brandon. So I had to ski Brandon gap to Lincoln gap or sorry, Brandon gap to Middlebury gap and then Middlebury gap, the natural turnpike to Lincoln. So that was like a 30 mile day. Um, which was the biggest day and stands is the biggest day that I've ever skied. So, um, yeah, but it was well worth it to have at least something that wasn't snow to sleep on. Um, <laughs> I, I also stayed in another barn up in the Northeast kingdom. That was a, a, a friend of a friend's spot that was, um, you know, ha had a, like a little bit of electricity so I could plug my phone in and, and get my external battery charged up. And it was really nice to have those, um, those little moments to reset and get things dried out. Um, but I, I did want to do it in, in such a way that I could, I could consider it fully self-supported. And, um, and that was important to me was to, to sleep cold every night, at least, even if there is a <laughs> nothing over my head, you know, like, but one of the most memorable spots was um, there was a, a little cabin that I came to grout pond was the, the location it's near somerset reservoir second night i believe so pretty far down south because um, i went from south to north and it was one of the longer days i'd done up until that point and i had a food drop that i'd stay i'd stashed near grout pond and i was coming up and the the sun was going down skiing right across the middle of this pond it was pretty pretty cool when you come to a, a reservoir or a pond like that because uh, you've been in the woods navigating all kinds of different surfaces. And then you can just get onto a nice dead flat. Um, <clears throat> usually like there's a nice layer of snow because it's just been wind blown for the whole winter and, um, and the sun was setting and I was able to retrieve my, my food bag, but about 10 minutes before that spotted this little, this little three-sided lean-to that was for summer camping that was right on the trail and, um, you know, was able to go get the food and then run back to that, to that cabin and, um, and that felt, that felt super cool to be in a space that wasn't on snow. You know, it, it only been one night, but it, it was like, it meant a whole lot in that moment to have, to have that and to have 
to know that if it was going to snow, I wouldn't be getting snowed on and that I could um, have a nice consistent flat surface to eat on and get things organized. And yeah, um, there's a lot of, I mean, I imagine your, your routine, your daily routine kind of, uh, you must've settled in and like, I feel like winter camping, one of the things is moisture management and, uh, you know, over the course of the time, like for your sleeping bag, your tent or any of these things, it's, you really have to have that kind of dialed in a little bit. Um, so what did, what did your, what would your typical day look like? You know, just, just generally like you'd wake up, what time did you wake up and like, what was your process for getting ready? And, uh, yeah. um, so I would, I wake up at five fifteen every day and usually it was, well, it was, yeah, it was always still dark at five fifteen, and, um, I, <laughs> I was just thinking about this. It wasn't actually that hard to get out of bed, mostly just because I had so many layers on underneath my sleeping bag that by removing my sleeping bag, I had two sleeping bags that I was using. I would have used one if I, um, if I had the right degree, but I just had two fall sleeping bags. So that was my solution. But, um, but you know, peeling away a couple of sleeping bags doesn't make a whole lot of difference when you already have two layers of long underwear and, and a shell and two puffy jackets on. So, um, so yeah, I, I roll out of bed and usually get some water going, um, for, either for tea or oatmeal or um, whatever I happen to be having for breakfast. And um, I would always hang my food for, as a bear, bear safety precaution. And I was, I, I've, there's, I've read sort of mixed ideas around that in the winter time, it's pretty low risk, but it's still one of those things where it's, um, it's definitely advised and it's the safe thing to do. So I had to, you know, put it all food in the bag, like throw a rope over a tree branch and, and hoist it up. And, um, so I'd always have to, you know, get my puffy shoes on and, and sort of post hold over to the food bag, grab it and post hold back, which wasn't never my favorite part of the day, but, um, <laughs> but had to happen. And, uh, I'd usually be on the trail around six thirty or seven. Um, and that was frustrating at first to have such a long transition time. Cause I, it's something I love about, bike touring and being in the in the summertime is being able to just move so quickly and have all of your systems exactly where they need to be but when you're when you're winter camping there's just more there's just more things to deal with there's more there's a bigger sleeping bag there's a ground cloth that might have snow on it um and and more little odds and ends for for keeping warm so um but I did find a routine with getting everything packed and packed in such a way that I could access it really, really effectively and have the stuff that I wanted close by on top. And then the things that were only for when I get to camp at the bottom. Um, but yeah, I would, I would throw my backpack on with all the gear in it usually by seven o'clock. And, um, and that moment of, of folding up the ground tarp and putting my skis on, I think was always my favorite part of the day because it, there's all these little details you have to deal with, get the feet prepped up. Like that was another thing I do in the morning is um, I, I had my little moleskin routine and, um, and would sometimes put some sort of like, uh, like salve on my feet if they were, if they were getting dry or whatever it may be, get fresh socks on that sort of thing. Um, but putting the ski boots on, by the end was, was not a fun thing to do in the morning. Really like stiff feet combined with 
you know, five degrees out and your plastic of your boots has, it just really doesn't have much flex to it. So that's a hard part of the morning that can, can be painful. And maybe that going back to the boots thing, maybe that would have been a big plus of having a slightly softer set of boots, but, um, but yeah, I, I really liked that feeling of getting my backpack on and getting my skis on and starting to slide again. Cause it felt, it felt like, um, uh, just like a, a comfortable place to be after doing it for so many days. And like, it, almost like I was more comfortable on skis than I was on my feet for those couple of weeks. <laughs> um, like, so it was like, oh, okay. Like this is, I know how my weight's distributed. I know like how to, how to maneuver with, with these things on my feet and this backpack on and all the sort of understood body weight transfer stuff that comes with doing it for so long. So. Yeah. Well, I imagine what it's supposed to take about two weeks to develop new habits. Right. And so you yep. spent two weeks with more time on skis. If you, I feel like if you remove the time you spent laying down and sleeping, you probably right. were spending considerably more time on skis than Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even like when I get to camp, you know, like I'd ski all day. I'd, I'd usually have um, a snack break around 10 o'clock and then lunch around 12 or one um, and would, would be more or less skiing the rest of the time. But uh, even when I got to camp, like I would keep my skis on and, and pad down the space that, uh, that I was going to set up my, my tent. And I would even put my tent up with my skis on. And cause every time, like every, every step you take without your skis on is, is uncomfortable because you're you're post pulling down to your knee in some cases in some cases there's not as much snow so it's not as big of a deal but um but i would keep my skis on like until the very very bitter end like i'd sort of even like plop down and like lean halfway onto my ground tarp and do some stuff <laughs> i need to do and then keep my skis on and, and then get all my food ready and put it in the bear bag and run it up so so the skis were on a whole a whole lot yeah so any uh, you, you mentioned like you'd stop for a snack. So what did you, when you were out on the trail, what, like what type of, what did you eat? And yeah. do you have any favorite types of like winter snacks, like stuff that doesn't freeze? You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I've got, I've got a little, actually a little prop here that, um, I'm a big fan of sardines and I, uh, this is the, the King Oscar sardine is I think a really, um, underrated and, uh, a, a real magic bullet for any sort of outdoor activity. And in the winter time, I found that the, the freezing point of a tin of sardines is about, it's not 32. Cause you can be, you can be at like 25 degrees and they won't be frozen. But once you get down to like 10 or 15 degrees, it's, um, you have to kind of excavate the sardines from the, the tin. But, um, but I, I do, um, I do really love the, like the, the protein and like the really consolidated package and um, the energy that that sardines provide. And I had probably a tin every day um, around 10 o'clock. And I also, uh, you know, had a lot of maple syrup. That's something that from working on sugar farm, it's always been around and um, untapped maple is the, is the um, sort of value added brand of the Cochrane sugar farm. So they have little, little syrup packets that, um, are just hundred percent maple syrup, but packaged into what traditionally would be like one of those little goo, um, packets. So I would, I would bring those along too. And, um, really anything tastes great when you're 
brief gold and in in the in the um sort of the, the moving mode so i think i was eating um you know uh like fritos and and <laughs> like raisins and all, all kinds of like chocolate and um yeah so a whole, a whole lot of stuff but i did get a uh i borrowed a dehydrator from a friend before i left and i really appreciated being able to both save the money on um you know buying the the, the pre-made dehydrated food and also just there's so much flexibility around the things that you can make in a dehydrator like you can really make any meal that you would have in a normal setting and then you put it in the dehydrator like even soups and that sort of thing you can make a chili and then and then lay it out onto the tray and um and and let it run for 14 hours and then come back and put it into a plastic bag and and it and it'll rehydrate for when you're on the trail so. so how much how much food did you carry with you at any one time it sounded like you had some food drops or like met up with like your parents for certain things totally yeah I did you have a certain plan like you're going to carry three or you know three or four days at a time or like yeah you, I, I had a I had a schedule so I had seven food drops across the state and it took me 14 days so um every you know every two days there would be another another food drop and that was one of the parts that uh that I think worked really well and took a lot of time in advance you know there's a day that I just got all my food ready, put it in the, the car and drove the whole length of the state and dropped drop food. And some of those food drops were hung in trees in the more remote spaces. And then um, a couple of them were, were with uh, just random like people on the trail. Like one of them was this little tiny um, ski rental shop near Killington. That's uh, like Marty is the guy who, who runs this place. And super, super good guy. And um, I, just knocked on his door and and asked if I could stash a bag of food under his you know under one of his like he just had a spot for it and and made it work for me um nice. and same thing with up in Morrisville this amazing couple just happened to be walk out walking their dog and I was sort of awkwardly driving around their neighborhood looking for like what might be a good person or place to to put some food and um I've actually stayed in touch with them and uh and have gone back to hang out with them without my skis on. And, nice. uh, and it, it turned into like a really, a really sweet sort of, um, sort of connection there. And, and, but point being is that there was, there were these, you know, first of all, I could carry less food, which is lighter, which, you know, a huge amount of the weight in the backpack is food in the winter time. Um, and luckily they all, they all were where I expected them to be um that's good yeah 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 it sounds like it sounds like you did a good job minimizing food weight and water weight just because again spring there's a lot of water running on the trail which is a good and a bad thing i guess <laughs> so Absolutely. yeah so that's because yeah those are the two things that carry like yeah that make up a lot of weight in a pack especially if you're trying to do like an extended trip so totally. it's, probably, it's probably a good thing that you offloaded as much of that as possible Right. And, you know, if you think about <clears throat> trying to do a, a more remote traverse, like um, whether it be in Vermont or, or somewhere out West where there isn't the same interaction with roads and, and towns, um, 
it, there wouldn't be an opportunity necessarily to do this this methodical and um, and routine of a food drop. But I was really grateful to have like the ability to have roads intersect with the trail and such easy access, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, when did you have any equipment? Did you have anything that didn't work for you or like stuff that just like totally sucked or that you wouldn't take with you again or didn't meet expectations? No, I mean, uh, I think most of my, most of my stuff did, did pretty well. Like I used a, a black diamond mega mid tent, um, which is just, a it's, um, a, a tarp tent style. So there's no fly. It's just a, a tarp that's got a center use your ski pole for the center pole. Yep. Um, and that was fantastic. And, and, um, no floor. and really too. yeah, no floor. Exactly. No floor, but I, um, you know, I'm working on this, uh, like a carpentry timber framing crew right now. And we had a little bit of extra, um, it's a, a product called Typar, which is built into houses as one of the, um, layers right underneath the siding that prevents wind and water to get into the house. And, Yep. we had some cutoffs of that. So I cut an eight by eight square and rolled it up. And that was my, my ground, my ground cloth. But no, I, I didn't have any catastrophic failures of gear. And, um, and like I said, was able to switch out my water bottle and, and my, my footwear situation. And um, yeah, that's nice. So nothing, nothing that stood out is like, just, I would, that you, you were planned, you planned on taking, you had high hopes for, and just didn't work out. Right. Yeah. I got it. Well, it sounds like you have, it sounds like you have a lot of kind of long distance trips under your, under your belt. So you've had a lot of time to kind of sort out what yeah. works, what doesn't. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, I'd like to think so. Not in the wintertime, but sure. Yeah. The summertime goes. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm interested in your two bag setup is interesting. Um, you know, not, it's not necessarily like new, but I, I like that approach. I feel like a lot of people don't go winter camping. I'm a big fan of winter camping. Um, and, uh, I feel like a lot of people don't go winter camping cause like they worry about being cold or they don't think they have the right equipment and like, you know, layering bags is a perfect way to go. Cause it's, it's super warm. It's often easier to pack, you know, yep. like one big bag is much more, you know, uh, it's awkward and can be hard to find, figure out where to put two small bags can provide the same amount of warmth and be much easier to manage. Oh and yeah, so absolutely. I'm all about, um, I think Anytime you can have fewer pieces of gear in your closet that can do multiple things, it's cheaper that way. It's, you know, um, it's just, it's just more simple and it allows for people that a winter sleeping bag is, is, you know, between $500,000 and, and maybe if that's something that you're going to be doing a whole lot of and you have the money to spare and that's great, but I don't think that should be a barrier for, um, enjoying the spectacular, like strangeness of the winter time and being out there in all hours of the day. Totally. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Totally with you there. Well, and also just, it's, it sucks to buy anything and not use it, you know? Right. And so it's always good to have stuff that invest in stuff that will see a lot of use and that you'll get your value out of. Right. Right. Yeah. Certainly. So, uh, what were some of the, what were some of the challenges, like other challenges other than like your boot catching fire and stepping into a stream. <laughs> Did you, uh, were there any other challenges that you faced on the trail that kind of stood out? 
uh, that might, maybe you haven't mentioned yet? Well, one comes to mind, which was keeping my, my batteries charged in the wintertime. Um, you know, phone, headlamp, external battery, uh, Garmin, which was just my, like, my sat phone sort of emergency, um, doing it solo. That was, that was really critical. But, um, you know, the, the story that comes to mind here is I was in right outside Okemo on the backside of Okemo mountain and, um, all my batteries were, were almost out. And I, you know, like if you don't have a headlamp and you're trying to like, that's, there's just a whole lot of safety, um, thoughts around communication, light, like it's all the things that are like really safety oriented require batteries. So, um, I, I was almost out and didn't really have any, um, solution to gain it charged in the future. And wasn't like I was going to be passing a gas station or any place to, to charge up. So I went through this little town of Healdsville. Uh, it's actually considered a gore and it's on the backside of Okemo. Um, a couple hundred people live there and I skied right past a house that, um, it looked really old. It had, you know, a, a wood pile out, out front and, and a VW in the driveway. And I was like, what the heck, I'll just knock on the door and, and see about, um, if, you know, I might be able to just plug something in and then hang out outside and, and not, um, you know, not get anyone's way, but just get my stuff charged up and, and move on my way. And, uh, this really amazing guy came to the door. He's, I think he was in his late seventies, early eighties. And, his name was John and he had just gone his second vaccine shot. So, uh, you know, he felt okay about, you know, we both wore masks and we kept our, our six feet, but I, I went into his house and, um, and he shared coffee and fruit and I ate my lunch and it was all, you know, like I, I took my, my boot liners out of the boots and put them up against his, his like baseboard heater and filled up my water bottle and, and I had all my stuff charging and, and we just hung out and, and talked in his kitchen for awesome. over an hour. And, um, and, you know, I got his phone number and I, I would sit, he was on Instagram. So that's kind of the way that I was sharing updates, but I'd send him photos every couple of days and, and keep in touch with him. But um, that's awesome. really special, like had some great, real, like super interesting conversations with him about his life and about the outdoors in Vermont. And he, he had been a, a lawyer for a number of years and he was now a, a novelist and historian and just one of those people that I, there's no other context that I probably would have overlapped with him, but really appreciated that and came out of it with, you know, all the important little details of water and, yeah, yeah. and a full belly and full battery and was able to go on my way and, and um, be all recharged in, in every capacity of the word. So that's awesome. That sounds, yeah. I mean, I feel like those are kind of the experiences you kind of hope for, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's crossing those paths. So uh, you mentioned again, along the lines of batteries and phones and stuff, how did you, how did you navigate? Did you like, what was your primary source of navigation? Did you have any troubles navigating along the trail? And then did you have any kind of, uh, yeah, like what did you, hopefully you didn't have any challenges, but. <laughs> no, I, I had a really good experience navigating. I, um, I've got my maps here that they're the catamount trail maps that they're um they're waterproof you know they're, they're just the standard issue and um and super really well designed um clear to read they have um you know different colors for different trail types so you have you know the the orange is the 
um, the snowmobile trail and then the blue is single track and green is, um, is the like cross country ski centers. So that was, that was my primary, like that would always be in my pocket. I'd pull that out every couple at, at any intersection or any sort of question I had, but I did have the GPX file on my phone on the app Gaia, um, uploaded that. So that was able to show exactly where my location was in relationship to the route, which there were moments when that was helpful. Um, just if I, like maybe I had a good picture of broadly where I was, but I, I didn't know, okay, I might've gone off the trail or I decided to go fill up my water or whatever and got a little bit diverted. Then I could pinpoint exactly where I was, what the topography was around um, and get a more exact, um, you know, uh, yeah. idea of, of exactly where I was. So those two in conjunction were great. And I would also add that the markings on the trail are, are just really, really good. Like there were times when I was, um, I, it makes me think about going over Bolton mountain and the trap, the Bolton trap trail is a, a notoriously like remote high Alpine, um, there's big signs that say, don't, don't ski this alone. And I'm like, Oh, great. It's, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. I've got a huge backpack on. I'm going in. It's just snowed six inches and I'm skiing this alone that they say I shouldn't ski alone. But, um, and that said, I, I had, you know, I had all of the right equipment with me to, to stay safe and, and do it in a safe manner. And I was in the right condition to be doing it. But, um, you know, I was the first one breaking trail up at 3000 feet through these spruces. And the only thing that I was following was the blue markers and, um, and just was extremely appreciative to have such well-marked, um, trails up there. And, um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you didn't get, you never got so lost that it affected your time. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, there weren't any like, yeah. You know, I somehow I'm like starting to go south and I'm like on the wrong vast trail. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, but I, I do know we have had issues with people like crossing, like where it transitions from a snowmobile trail back to kind of backcountry only trail. You know, sometimes like I feel like sometimes those transitions can be hard to make, hard to make if somebody hasn't gone before you because it's really easy just to like get on some of those snowmobile trails corridors and just like you're just kind of cruising along. Oh, absolutely. It's easy to miss a turn if you're not paying attention or if you're like nine hours into a 10 hour day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's certainly true. And there were, there were like one or two times that I, I would blow past something, but it, it would be like, I just found that like, I really was tuned into if there wasn't a blue marker within the course of like a minute or two, then something was wrong and I'd pause and I'd look at my maps and usually I'd go back to where the, the trail cut off and it would be a pretty clear, like there'd be, there'd be multiple things. It was just me and my own sure. tuned out. It happens. It's one of the things that we can are concerned about making sure people are safe and you know, you want to be able to provide, you want to provide a backcountry experience. You don't want to like hold people's hand the whole time, but at the same time, you know, there are, there's a certain expectation of having a marked trail. Yep. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's good to know. So yeah. reflecting, reflecting on your experience, um, did you, what were some of your favorite parts? Do you have, do you now have a favorite section of the Catamount Trail or? Yeah, the, um, let's see, the stretch, 
between um, the stretch right before I met John when I had and you know hadn't charged my batteries for um, for that period of time was was really amazing. I'm forgetting the number of it, but it's um, here here one sec. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the, uh, that stretch was, um, was, was super sweet. Like just around Okemo, it's a lot of, it's a lot of bass trail, which I think part of the reason I really liked it was that it was so consistently, um, like good, good snow. Like no matter if there was, uh, you know, if there was ice, ice in the woods as sort of a, the other, the, the, the non like groom, you know, cause the snowmobiles do, they do groom it out and, um, and would, would no matter the conditions, if it was powder, they'd, they'd make it nice groomer. If it was ice, they'd make a nice groomer. So I think that was part of the reason I liked that is just that it was really consistent and it was a really remote stretch too. Um, and, uh, I think as I, as I think through like the, the sections that were, that were farther, farther out into the backcountry, I really love. Like the one coming over from Mad River Glen to Camel Sump was it was exceptional. Going through Faceton, yeah, um, that's section nineteen. Like that's a really fun. It crosses the Long Trail. You you cross over the the spine of the Greens. Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. Yeah, you go from the sort of the the eastern watershed over to the western, and and I also like that section because that's where my that's that's like my sort of home section too is where that ended at camel's hump that's where i'd skied all winter and um that's really where i first started to like you know we a couple of weeks before i i headed out it was, i would be skiing up there and it was like man like this this could you know I, I could do a through ski of this and so that's where those ideas sort of started um being generated up there nice <clears throat> so let's see well, so, I mean, I guess, were there, was there any information ahead that you wished you had ahead of time that might've made your experience better or your, like, I mean, you know, we try to provide a lot of information. I know you were in touch with our office, uh, a number of us here asking questions, but I'm just wondering if there was something that now that you've skied the whole thing, if there was anything you're like, oh man, if I had that, I could have, it would have been, it would have been this better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was, um, I wish that there had been more resources on multi-day ski touring in Vermont because I remember Googling and looking for books and the, the sort of like pigeonholes you'd get into one would be like big mountain, Alaska, Colorado, like where there's 10 feet of snowpack and you're above tree line and you're like digging out underneath your tent to make windscreens and um, and there's sort of there it's its own set of challenges that comes with that. The other pigeonhole would be like European like um, you know cabin skiing where it's like consider backcountry skiing but it's you don't carry any of your gear you just yeah. um, have a, maybe a sleeping bag and some some day stuff and maybe a little food and, and you go to like a four-sided cabin and, and stay in that. Um, so I really appreciated 
there were a couple resources I had, one of which was Leith Tonino wrote a book um, called Seven Lengths of Vermont. There are short essays about him uh, experiencing Vermont in, on various different like ski bike from a plane, from a train, hiking the long trail. He, he swam the length of Vermont like with a little boogie board and, and flippers, like just awesome adventures, really good stories. And I, I definitely recommend that book, but he did ski the Catamount trail and has an essay on it um, that I found I was able to glean a lot of information from and, um, and wish there'd been more of that. And I, like, I, um, I think I would have, I would have read Sam Brakeley's book as well. Um, Sam was the, uh, you know, sort of the, the previous, um, he had done it relatively quickly and has written a book about the experience. And, um, he was a, a really big part in my planning process and I was in touch with him and, and he was super helpful and we talked on the phone and, and that sort of thing. But I, I would, uh, um, I'm, I haven't read his book yet, but I'm sure that there's a whole lot of good information in it, um, regarding, ski touring in the wintertime and in Vermont over multi days, but yeah, yeah like I, I, um, I wish there was more, there was more Vermont specific, um, multi-day stuff out there for wintertime. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like multi-day winter travel is not as quite a, it's just not as prevalent. It's not. <laughs> I mean, like really like you need a long distance winter trail to be able to do something like that. And there really aren't, you know, you think about, you know, the long trail, you, you don't see many people hiking. Like, that's the thing, like in Vermont, you're going to be skiing. Like, that's why the Catamount Trail exists. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And There's, so, yeah. even like neighboring states like New Hampshire or something, they don't have like equivalent, you know, long distance ski trails, you know. Totally, yeah. It's And I think that's sort of a, after, after having skied the Catamount Trail, I, I'm almost surprised that there aren't more, there aren't more people out there doing it. Cause it's not, it doesn't have to be a massively money intensive and massively like high skill, high precision thing. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it um, that you can be comfortable and warm and can use existing gear and, um, and doing it in times of year, like in shoulder season, like I was able to do it in, in March and have long days and, and stay warm because the ambient temperature wasn't incredibly cold. Um, and I, I certainly hope that like any resources that, that we're able to put out about my ski, I, I think that would have been helpful for me too. Like just hearing about like the routine of what sort of equipment you use and, um, and, and all that, anything really around ski touring Vermont, I think would be, would be great. Sounds, sounds like we need to recruit you to do a presentation. Uh, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll write a book here. It's, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a book, just a pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, so when you, after 14 days on the trail, like how did it, how did it feel to finish? You know, like when you, when you saw that, that uh, border marker, like what was that like? And was there anybody there? Like, was there anybody waiting for you right there or did it yeah the last the last day was um was special and long and and a lot of things but it started around hazen's notch which is a pretty a pretty amazing <laughs> geographic feature um 
in in the kingdom up up north um but it was one of my few like precipitation mornings like it was kind of misting snowing for the morning so i i knew i was in hazen's notch and i knew there were these huge cliffs on either side of me but it could have just been any other road because i couldn't see them but um slushy snow and pretty soft and um anyone who's who skied that sort of ascent up to jay knows that it's it's quite a it's quite a, a big time um climb like it's it's long and consistent and more stream crossings like per unit distance than anywhere else on the trip totally. um, and i think part of it too is mental because you know that once you're at that j gap it's it's genuinely there's no uphill from there you just you go down the backside of j and then you're in like the quebec the sort of quebec geography you know of like yep. much flatter um sort of marshy so yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a long morning and I, I made it up to the top and then the descent was also like more technical than I'd hoped and more, a lot slower than I'd hoped and was sort of survival skiing going downhill. <laughs> but it certainly felt good to be on the, on the, the far side. And I also like acknowledged that there was like some sadness too of like being so close to the end and there's a certain routine and like comfort of being on the trail every day that um that got like I, I did notice like there was just like some a whole variety of different feelings going on at, at that point um but yeah I got down to Jay and I remember like there's a really sweet Jay Jay County store there um draw my backpack and my skis and walked in the store and just like I think I was wearing it, like just hair was going out. I had a mullet at that time too. <laughs> like, the hair was everywhere. Like asked them to fill my water bottle up and there's like people from out of state in the parking lot kind of looking at me funny. And um, it was one of those kind of classic moments. But um, then I, I kept on my way and about four miles away from the end of the trail, I came around a corner and someone had like um, spray painted in the snow, a big A-I-D-A-N and with an arrow to the left and I looked up and there was a, a like a plastic bag hanging from the tree and someone who I, I still have no idea who it was that did this but um someone had baked cookies and they left a, a citizen cider in the bag and nice. a super sweet note just um sort of congratulating me on finishing and giving some supportive words and um and so that was that was like exactly what I needed. I think just to get that little extra, like feeling that there was some wind in my back from, from other people. And, um, and then I just like really took off on the flats and, and, um, that was one of the few times that I actually, I took a longer way. I took the vast trail sort of like two sides of a triangle instead of taking the straight because there was really little snow and it was the Catamount trail went through a marsh at that time. And I was, pretty certain that it would be it would be um not no a pretty, a pretty tough ski but you know once again like the the snowmobile trails were awesome because they were so packed in from the year that the snow holds out for a couple more weeks and yeah. um, was able to do that last bit and the last mile as you know goes on um it's a, a big pipeline that it like i don't know what the pipeline is for you probably know better than i but it's about 50 feet wide 
or more, maybe a hundred feet wide. And, and there's a Sebastrel that runs, it's dead straight and the Sebastrel runs right down, right down the middle. Um, and so it was just like this dead straight shot, just power skiing to the end. And, um, it's up in North Troy where it crosses the border. So, um, yeah, my, my folks were up there and my, like our little, our little dog was there. And so the last mile, my, my mom and dad, um, joined me. We kind of like followed it. And it, at the end there, it's just like, there's a, a field. And at the end of the field, there's, there's the border marker. So, yep. um, I've been skiing really hard all day. And then, and then my mom and dad joined along and we, we toned the pace down a whole lot and chatted and I hadn't seen them for, you know, better part of a week or something. So it was, um, it was definitely a celebration. And the, I would say the moment that it felt like I'd, I'd made it was like seeing, seeing their car and seeing people I knew. And, um, and then that last little half mile to the border was, was just sort of symbolic in a way. But when you got back to the car, did you have like a favorite pair of shoes that you put on or did you <laughs> not put shoes on for a little while? <laughs> I, my, you know, my dad put a whole bunch of clean clothes in there and I just, I just took my boots off and I think like didn't even like have the like the energy or the thought to even put them on I just kind of like collapsed in the back of the car and <laughs> I think there were some chips in the back seat or something that I <laughs> that I ate but um but it certainly did feel good to to get a shower in that night and be in a warm space um after after no warm spaces. So. And now I have to get up the next morning if you didn't want to. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So you did, again, you did it in 14 days and two hours. Um, do you think, do you think anybody will be able to beat your time? And how low, how low do you think somebody could potentially do it in? Oh, definitely. Definitely. They could beat my time. Absolutely. Um, and I'm really excited to see when that happens. I'm going to, I would definitely encourage people to, to give it a shot and um and i think that i i can imagine someone um pushing the boundaries of 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 each side of the day with some headlamp time and going as low as single digit days um i think i think it can be done absolutely and i think that um once we get our our pamphlet out and our our presentation <laughs> and we get more more people involved then then we'll make it happen but Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. The goal has been set. Yep. <laughs> so, that's awesome. So, and also, so one other thing that's not necessarily directly related to the trail, your trail experience, but you did decide to raise, do a, um, tie a fundraiser, do some fundraising while you were out on the trail. Can you tell, do you want to share a little bit about that and like how that, ex how that went and why, and maybe why you, you kind of like chose to kind of incorporate a fundraising component into your attempt? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Unlikely Riders is the organization that I decided to raise money for. And um, they are uh, this really sweet organization that um, supports uh, people of color and indigenous folks getting out on skis. Um, and they have a number of different ways of, of helping that, that happen. And one of which is they have a, a gear closet that um, sort of tunes into some of the stuff we were talking about, but limiting gear as a, as sort of a, a factor that holds people from, from getting into the sport and skiing being such a, a gear intensive, intensive sport. And 
that's a big part of it, but they also have lessons and community events um, just to, yeah, to, to support people of color being on skis. And um, I, I really think that's important and, um, and think that, that snow sports shouldn't be uh, reserved for any type of person, any, any um, wealth demographic or, or skin color, anything like that. So, um, you know, I only, I was, I only heard about unlikely riders this winter and was excited about their message and, um, and reached out to them and they, they uh, responded, they'd be interested in, in sort of collaborating in this way. And we ended up, uh, I had a friend pull together a little bit of art for like the, the cover of the fundraiser and sent it out um, the night before I left. And I think on day three, we'd raised a thousand dollars, which is my goal. And, and people just kept donating. So we got to just a, I think we got to 1600 bucks at the end and was able to forward that straight to their account. So that's going to be, um, you know, put toward equipment toward, uh, facilitating, uh, gatherings for people of color on skis and, um, it'll be put to, to really good use. So that felt, that felt awesome. And, um, and as a way to redirect the sort of momentum around, all the folks that were excited about what I was doing and to not just make it about, um, about my own challenge, but to try to, to like redirect that excitement into something that had a bigger impact felt, felt really good. That's awesome. Yeah. We've, we've been really impressed with what unlikely, unlikely riders has been doing and we'll, I'll, we'll link to it in the description of the video afterwards. So we can, can kind of continue sending them some love, uh, because yeah, it is, uh, super important work that they're doing so uh, absolutely I would agree and they, they've got um, they've got a really a really good online presence and I would encourage people to to spread the word on their on their behalf and and get in touch with them and, and be involved because it's, it's been a pleasure to to be in 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 touch with them about all this so nice well thanks well it was, it was nice chatting with you today um do you have any like shout outs to other people that maybe you haven't mentioned or, or did you have any sponsors or support special supporters that you might want to like, you know, acknowledge um, or, or anything else that like maybe we didn't touch on that you wanted to share with uh, people that might be watching? Well, I've got, I would say in the supporters and, and um, sort of sponsors department, uh, I've got a, a buddy Wyatt at school who, who, uh, sewed me a hat that was great for the trip and, and also having Vermont glove on the hands. Both of those were, were critical and, um, and just felt awesome to like, know the people that were, that were making gear. Um, trying to think of, of, I mean, there's so many people, all the folks that, that donated to the, the campaign and, um, and were able to send words of support on the trail. I, I was posting on Instagram most days and, uh, it was, I didn't have the chance to respond necessarily, but it, it felt really cool to like have people, um, giving their sort of two cents on where I was at. And it was everyone from like aunts and uncles to people I'd never met before that were tuned in from the Catamount trail. Um, for like all the this, this stuff on Facebook that you were sharing about the trip and, yeah. um, and I would say also like having family in Vermont that were able to um, 
you know, swap out my water shoes for my puffy shoes and, <laughs> and, um, and bring a, you know, a hug in a chocolate bar every now and then as well was, was really huge. So thanks mom and dad. And my, my brother, Mike visited me up North and, um, there were, I would say also to Chris Jolly, um, for hooking me up with a couple of spots to stay. And, um, I'm sure I'm missing people, but there's, it, it was certainly not, uh, like hands down would have been possible just to do this solo and wouldn't have been as fun. And, um, and there's, there's so many people that go into this sort of, this sort of trip that I probably couldn't even start to thank them all, but <laughs> they're out there. Sorry, sorry for challenging you too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Awesome. Uh, and any, any, and anything else that any other experiences you had that you might want to share or any other comments just before we sign off? No, I'm obligated to share anything. I just, <laughs> just checking. No, I, I feel like we've, um, we've hit a lot of the, the important parts of the trip for me. Yeah. Nice. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your day. I mean, I know three o'clock is kind of a weird time to, yeah. to have a meeting, but, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I also, we also really appreciate you just taking on the challenge of like skiing the whole trail in a day, because I mean, for us, it's like this type of thing is I think is gets people excited. You know what I mean? Like seeing somebody do it, you know, we've had a, like under less than a hundred people have skied the entire catamount trail, whether through skiing it or section skiing it. And so it's still one of those things that not a lot of people have done. And you know, seeing somebody come out and do it, you know, quickly is one of those things. Like there's a lot of Nordic skiers out there that, you know, here, here you go. Here's your next challenge. You know yep. what I mean? So oh yeah. It's like, it's here. It's waiting for, it's waiting for people to come out and like figure out and, and interpret, interpret it in their own way and just go after it. So mm -hmm. we're here to help them figure out what that, what that looks like. So totally. And, 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 you know, being on this side of it, I, um, I, I really appreciated all the support you guys have had with when I was first bouncing the ideas around of doing the trip and, um, and just having in-depth responses to, to questions and having a really uh, just holistic website and, um, and all the, all the support you guys put toward me as someone um, just trying to ex experience this trail. And I'm sure that, uh, that that'll be the, the way for, um, for whoever does it in the future as well. So I would say we really appreciate that. Yeah. You're welcome. Well, and thank you. Thank you too, for just providing some inspiration for others. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. Cool. So, well, again, thank you for your time. I hope, uh, I wish you luck in your future endeavors. Um, you know, you I feel like you're going to have to find another long distance ski trail to kind of like put under your belt. I don't That's know. True. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll be following along, whatever it is. Cool. All right. Sweet. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Greg. All right.